Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, gang. Mike, Mark, and Barry with you. Hope you're all healthy and safe. And, folks, I think what makes this episode fun is that, first of all, our guest is Rick Sutcliffe, star big league pitcher for 18 years, national broadcaster. But also the fact that our partner, Barry Axelrod, has been his agent for the past 40 plus years. Mike, the unique ability of this podcast will show you different layers, the aspect of a player, a broadcaster, but the most important aspect for a player is who's behind the scenes, who's diving into all of that work. And Barry Axelrod, over 40 years with Rick Sutcliffe, we will hear all of those great stories in this podcast, and I can't wait to hear them all. Rick, so glad you're able to join us. 18 memorable seasons in the big leagues, all-star games, an ERA title, Cy Young Award. But let's go back to what you feel was your signature moment. Comes late in the Cubs' 1984 season. You're pitching for a team that hadn't even seen the postseason in nearly 40 years. Take us to the day in Pittsburgh and the pressure that surrounded that moment. You know, first of all, I'd, I'd obviously just like to say hello to my good buddy, uh, Mark Sweeney, uh, Barry Axelrod. You know, I, I pretty much talk to you every day of my adult life. And, Mike, I just want to apologize. I want to congratulate you. Uh, I'm a little late on um, that 2018 World Series you had with Boston. And, and congrats <laughs> on that new four-year deal. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> You know, I get that all the time. You know, this is a sign of age, though, Rick. People used to ask me uh, if that was my brother. Now they ask me if it's my kid, Drew Pomeroy. <laughs> and we're not related at all, by the way. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't going to agree to do this if I could not try to get that great Mark Sweeney laugh. And I think I did. So what was your question again? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with uh, your signature moment. 18 years in the big leagues, you have all these accolades of the Cy Young Award to look back on, an ERA title, the All-Star Games. But your moment in your mind seems to have come late in the 84 season with the Cubs. You're pitching for a team that hadn't been in the postseason in 40 years. Take us to that moment in Pittsburgh and the pressure surrounding that game. You know, Mike, the, the pressure started um, when we left Wrigley Field. We had a homestand there against the Pirates and we got swept. Uh, and I'll never forget the newspaper saying that, uh, you know, they fooled us again. Um, I had no idea what it meant because, as you guys know, it was the middle of June when I got traded. Uh, as I'm walking to the bullpen to pitch that Monday night in Pittsburgh, um, I see a family holding up a huge sign down the left field line, and it said, 39 years of suffering are enough. Well, I had no idea what that meant. But as I finished warming up, I had a tradition where, I would always find a kid to give the baseball to that I warmed up with. And I brought the dad down and the son that was holding the sign. And I said, here, I want your son to have it. And he says, I said, but I need to know what, what does that sign mean? And he goes, it's been 39 years since we've been to the playoffs. And I went, wow. I mean, I had, I had no idea um, the history of the Cubs going into that. Um, we get into the game. Uh, we get to the final out. Uh, you know, we strike out Joe Ursulak. Um, we celebrate on the field. Um, Sweeney, as you know, you've celebrated many, many times. Mark, we go in the clubhouse, we pour champagne. It's a Monday night in Pittsburgh, Mike. There's, there's nothing to do. There's, there's nowhere to go. Um, we figure the night's over with. And Harry Carey came up to me and he goes, hey, Sut, can, can you get the guys to come out on the field? The producer for WGN, Arnie Harris, he says he's got something for you. 
Well, Mike, we all walk out onto the field and we all just sit down. And Arnie Harris had piped in from Wrigley Field to the big screen there in Pittsburgh what was going on at Wrigley Field. Um, as we speak, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about just how quiet we were on the field because a lot of us had, had come from a lot of different places and we really had no idea how much it meant to the, to the Cup fan. Um, we get back to Wrigley Field. And this is a moment that I'll never, ever forget. Um, we walk into the clubhouse, and there were a lot of guys there that I, I didn't know. Obviously, I recognized Ernie Banks and, and, and Billy Williams. But this guy comes up to me, and he grabs me by my shirt. And, I mean, he, he was a man. I had nowhere to go. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he goes, Rick, I'll never be able to repay you. You were able to give these fans something that we weren't able to do. Mike, it was Ron Sano. You could tell how much passion he had for the Cubs and how excited he was um, that they were going to be able to get back to the postseason. So as I look back on a lot of things, I would really, even though there were barely 5,000 people there that night, I'd have to say that was probably that signature moment. How powerful that is from uh, uh, Ron Santo, a great, and you, you mentioned Ernie Banks, that ability to make an impact on former players and how important it was to the Chicago Cubs. Barry, interesting aspect for you. You weren't able to go to that game, but it was important for you to put your eyeballs on it. Take it in your lens of what that type of pressure was on your client, Rick Sutcliffe. Well, I, as Rick said, it, uh, it had been so long, and I think Cub fans almost expected something to go wrong. Okay, we're riding high, but something's going to go wrong, and we're not going to get there. And to me, I was feeling that, and uh, I was excited for Rick, but I was, you know, feeling the pressure of it as well. And the main thing I remember about it is watching the end of the game and seeing Rick do this very subdued fist pump, and I went, "Well, he's not very excited." For <laughs> I mean. I just clenched the pen for the first time in 40 years. But he later told me, I asked him, what, why? What were, were you tired? Or you couldn't get your arm up? What was up? And he's told me the story. Rick, you should relate that. What happened? So, Mark, Sween Dog, you can, you can relate to this. So, as I'm going out for the ninth inning, Jody Davis, our catcher, he grabbed me and he said, hey, I want that last out. I want the baseball to be in my glove. And it didn't dawn on me until after like the first out. But then all of a sudden I got the second out and I go, oh, OK. Um, you know, he wants he wants me to strike out the last guy. He wants to be the guy that, that celebrates or whatever. So um, it's a four to one lead. I know Orsulak's going to take the first pitch. So BP fastball strike one. I throw a big curveball for strike two. And now in my mind, I go, OK, you got to set this up. So I'm going to throw a fastball about a foot outside. I'm going to hit the glove. I'm going to set him up. And then I'm going to throw that slider to the back foot of a left-handed hitter, and I'm going to get that strikeout. <laughs> well, guys, I throw that fastball, and if you go back and look at the video, it's a foot outside. It hits the glove perfect. And the next thing you know, Lee Wire, the umpire, raises his right arm, and he goes, that's it. Out, three, the game is over. <laughs> and I'm like, in my mind, I'm going, no, I don't want to be remembered for that. <laughs> They're going to say, no wonder we threw a complete game. If that's the strike zone that night, anybody could have. Anyway, it was, it was exciting, and, um, yeah, if you go back and look at the, the last pitch, it's a little embarrassing, but um, I did have a plan for it. 
Well, that's a great, uh, it was a great plan, great, a great execution of the plan. You send your agent into a tailspin of worry. Like, how could this guy be so despondent over launching his team to the playoffs? <laughs> <laughs> Rare reaction. And so this is 84, and we got so much for folks to hear from you about the 1984 season. But I want to go back, Rick, 10 years prior to when you got drafted. With a tough decision to make, you could have gone to college to play football, maybe basketball, uh, but what convinced you to sign in 74? I, I think to begin with part of it, um, Mike, was the opportunity to say that I played pro baseball. Um, you know how at one point in your life um, that was a goal. That was something that we always wanted to be able to say we, we, we did, and, and you were able to do that. Um, my life was pretty much normal until the end of my eighth grade year, and that's when my dad took off. Uh, Mom tried to raise us. Um, it wasn't happening. Um, what I thought was the worst day in my life when my dad left was actually looking back, probably the best day, um, of my life. My grandpa loved sports. Um, and when we moved in with him, um, he had one rule. He had one rule. He says, you guys can play all the sports you want, my younger brother and sister, but you have to get good grades. Well, Swing Dog, you can relate to this. I'm playing mm -hmm. football. We're undefeated. We're getting ready to play in the championship game. I come home with a bad report card. My grandpa doesn't let me play. We lose the game. Um, I, I know that everybody in, in the school was mad at me more than they were my grandpa because of what happened. But um, I learned a lesson. Um, then all of a sudden in 1974, Mike, to answer your question, long story short, um, the Dodgers draft me in the first round. They come to the house. Um, we started conversation, and, and I asked him, I said, well, out of everybody, why me? And they go, it's interesting you say that. Um, the one thing that stood out about you more than your fastball or anything else was your grade point average. And I said, well, why is, why is that important? Why does that matter? And they go, well, you're 17 years old. You're not going to the big leagues. You've got to go to the minor leagues. You've got to improve. To improve, you've got to listen to your coach. And the only scenario that we have, and you think about it, it's still true today. The only scenario we have to know if you as a player are going to listen to your coach the only thing to compare it to is you as a student listening to your teacher. Um, you know, it, it, it made all the sense in the world as I look back on it. Uh, had my grandpa not taken me out of that game and got my attention on how important grades were, I know I would not have been a first-round pick by the Dodgers. So what else did your grandfather do? I, I mean, it, did he take on the reins of, of – because finding an agent, doing all that stuff is pretty difficult in the high school ranks – did he, yeah. did, he uh, did he usher you through that whole process? He sure did, Mark. Um, and I came out of nowhere. Um, I was like you. My goal, my goal was to play football. Um, I wanted to go to the University of Missouri, and I wanted to play quarterback. And that was my plan. That was until the Dodgers drafted me. I, I had a real good high school year, and somebody saw me throwing in the mid-90s or whatever, and that was the reason for that. So we're all shocked, right? We get this phone call. Um, I'll never forget, I, I had washed dishes the night before at this restaurant. That was one of my jobs. I had cleaned dog kennels the morning, and I was out mowing the lawn when the lady that owned the, the dog kennel where I was mowing the lawn, she called and said, your grandma's on the phone. I come in, my grandma says, you've been drafted. She was like so excited, she couldn't hardly talk. I said, what? She said, you've been drafted by the Dodgers. I like, oh, wow. Well, a couple of days later, the Dodgers are coming to the house. My grandpa, who's a you know, was a retired carpenter, never went to school. Um, he was going to be my agent. So the Dodgers walked in, and after the conversation, they said, Mr. Europe, 
we're, plan- we're, we're, we're prepared to offer $40,000 to your son. And grandpa kind of sat back in his chair and he, you know, he, he's going to be, he's going to be very absolute, right? And he looks at it and he goes, uh, what kind of deal is that? And he goes, is that a, is that a lifetime deal or how many years is that? And they started laughing at him. Well, Sweeney Dog, my grandpa was a little short German, but I mean, I was scared to death of him until the day he died. He gets mad. And he looks at it and they said, no, that's a, a signing bonus. We're going to give that to him and then we're going to pay him a salary. Grandpa got up and opened the door and told him to leave. And they're like looking at him like, Mr. Yura, what, what are you talking about? Blah, blah, No, no. He says, get out of and, and him. Then he started cussing at him, told him to leave. By the time they got to the door, Swing Dog, they, he was, they were at 55000 He shuts the door on him. He says, sit down. I sit down. He goes, um, did you hear what they just offered you? And I said, yeah. He goes, they offered you forty grand." Well, I knew in my mind I just heard fifty-five, right, or whatever. Anyway, he goes, do you know how much money I made this year? And I went, no. He said, I had the best year of my life. I made $5,000. He goes, I can't represent you. I have no idea what to do with that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turned out, I mean, he—I mean, he was Barry Axelrod before Barry. <laughs> I wish I, I actually wish Barry, who represents both of us, w- would have taken some of those tactics at times. But he couldn't do it with a player like myself. Uh, interesting aspect to this, and I think it, it dives into the relationship and how you cultivated a relationship between you and Barry. Uh, take us through that, Barry, from your eyes in how that first meeting went with Rick Sutcliffe. Well, I was a, a young lawyer, mostly representing football players in L.A., but there were some disgruntled Dodger minor leaguers who needed some help, one of which was a guy named Rick Nitz. He called me. He was coming into town. He had a bad shoulder. He was going to see Dr. Job. I, I said, well, I'll pick you up at the airport. I'll take you, and then we'll have lunch. And then he was going to fly home. Well, standing on the curb with him was this, you know, big, tall, gangly guy with an afro, he said, you mind if we give this kid a ride, too? His shoulder's screwed up as well. So. You forgot the good-looking part, Bear. But go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> but but uh, so we went over, and, and they took Rick Nitz in first. And Rick and I are sitting in the waiting room, and we just got to know each other there and, and uh, kind of hit it off. And he didn't have anybody representing him at the time, and that started the relationship. I'd like to clean that up a little bit, dog, if if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Of Uh, course. Rick Nitz and I both get the report from Frank Job. Our rotator cuffs are torn. We're having surgery the next day. As I come out, Barry's there. Rick Nitz's family was there. They're driving home. Barry said, "Uh, where are you staying? I told him the hotel. He goes, hey, I'll give you a ride. As we're driving back, he goes, you know what they're going to do to you tomorrow? And I go, yeah. I go, you know, rotator cuff. And he goes, do you know what they're going to do? And I went, no. I said, it's Frank Joe. He goes, I'm 19 years old, Sweeney. He goes, let's go yeah. have a beer, okay? <laughs> I can tell the <laughs> truth now. As we sit down, he goes, they're going to tear you completely open. Nobody's ever come back from it. I said, what do you recommend? He goes, well, you know, you, you, you told me you had a chance to play college football. Your, your baseball career is probably over. If you have that surgery, it's definitely over. He goes, why don't you go back and play football? I went in the next morning, and I told Frank Joe I wasn't having the surgery. I would say to this day, Rick Nitz can't play catch with his kids. Um, as you know, the following year, uh, I was an all-star in AAA and became the rookie of the year in 1979. None of that would have ever happened um, without Mr. Axelrod's advice. Well, he is a moonlighting doctor. I think we're all aware of that. 
I, There's no I, way. I, I, I probably knew just enough to be dangerous because I had 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 a job on campus at UCLA working for the team doctor. So I knew what the surgeries were like at that time. And I was just making conversation. I wasn't trying to give medical advice. But uh, let me, hey, hey, Mike, let me add something real quick about um, Super Agent. Um, you know, he signs me to that long term deal in 84. I'm the highest paid guy in baseball in 85 and 86. And then all of a sudden, um, in 1986, um, I struggled. I was 5 and 14. Opening day, 1987, USA Today has an article with a player at every position on the most overpaid players in the game. Um, right in the middle on the mound is, is me. And I called my dear friend, Barry, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely crushed. The whole world's looking at this. And I said, Barry, I said, um, they crushed us, didn't they? And he goes, actually, they crushed you. He goes, my phone's been ringing off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> most popular guy in the, in the world of agents. Hey, when you represent the most overpaid guy, you, I guess you're doing your job, right? Hey, Rick, just to get to that point, it's already an extraordinary tale. You drafted with the uh, by the Dodgers in 74. Take me uh, up a couple of years to 76. When you get your, your first call up, I mean, you're just a baby. Tell us how you found out, who told you, who'd you call, and what was that moment like? Yeah, Mike, I'd been home for a week. Um, I had just turned 20 years of age, and I get the call to join the Dodgers um, uh, in Atlanta. I get off the airplane in Atlanta, and there's a guy there who you guys will all remember, um, veteran pitcher, great guy, Andy Messersmith. And Drew, as we called him, Andrew, Drew, uh, was a lot like Mark Sweeney. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, he's always going to be the, the coolest guy in the room, but he, he won't make you feel uncool or whatever. Well, I go out and I get in uh, Drew's car, and there in 1976, picture this. There is Sally Struthers. All in the family, Sally yeah. Struthers. Oh, yeah. Smoking, freaking hot. Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. We, we, we take a ride, you know, to the ballpark. And all of a sudden, I have a buddy in the big leagues, man. I mean, it was awesome. I thought, this is, this is so cool. Well, there's four days left in the season that year, and Walter Austin was retiring. And Tommy Lasorda was going to take over. And the one thing that Walter Austin said was, I want the kid to pitch. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to pitch that night. I'm warming up in the bullpen. Everything's great. I go out to the mound. I'm warming up. Everything's fine. Now, now, Mark, I came from Waterbury, Connecticut. You know that town. You know, you know that, that state. Um, all of a sudden, I'm on the mound. There's 55,000 people at Dodger Stadium. And I hear this voice. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know if I'm losing my mind. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> all of a sudden, I hear this voice go, you know what's going through the kid's mind. And I'm like, what? He goes, <laughs> you know he's on the mound that once stood the great Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. And just last night, his idol, Don Sutton. And I looked down, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Sutton was out here last night. He was on this mound. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I throw the last pitch, and Steve Yeager throws it down to second. He had a cannon for an arm. There's Davey Lopes, flips it to Bill Russell, throws it to Ron Say. Ron Say throws it to me, the Penguin. I'm playing catch with the Penguin. Somebody touched me from behind. I jump. It's Steve Garvey. Garvey goes, good luck, kid. I am going like, holy crap. All of a sudden, I wind up to throw the first pitch. You know Mike Brito that has the, the radar gun back there? Yeah. It didn't register. 
It was like, you know, it was like a lollipop coming in. Steve Yeager comes out and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I go, I'm hearing a voice. What, what's that voice? If you guys remember back in 76, everybody at Dodger Stadium brought a radio to the game to listen to the great Vince Scully. He points up to the press box. He goes, that's Vince Scully. Those are radios that you're hearing right now. One of these days, you might get to meet him. Oh, that's, a, that's incredible. And so is Vin Scully, as we all know. Uh, the great Vin Scully, as you alluded to. It, Sud, it's interesting. When that ball was thrown down by Jaeger and you started mentioning all of those guys around the infield, but we all have influences as players. Was there one guy that stuck out in your mind that took you under their wing? Because I think that, to me, is how you are molded as a player. You know what, Mark, there, there really was. And, um, you know, I think what Dusty Baker taught me, I was able to use later on in my career with young guys that might be struggling. Um, I know it was a big, big part of every team in baseball wanting a guy like you on that team uh, to be in those moments when somebody might need a pat on the back. They might need a kick in the butt, whatever it was. But it was Dusty Baker for me. Um, a lot of those guys, you know, say and Lopes and Garvey, they all had families. They all had a lot of things going on. Well, Dusty did too. But Dusty also knew that, you know, Bob Welch and Fernando Valenzuela and Dave Stewart and Ted Power, he knew that all of us, you know, needed that guy that was there for him. And as you know, in Atlanta, that guy was Hank Aaron. Uh, Dusty learned that from Hank. He passed it on to me. And, you know, the next thing you know, it, it, it goes to uh, – Greg Maddox and, and Ben McDonald and Mike Mussina and Jake Peavy. Um, it's no different, Mark, than anything that's happened in your career. But early in my career, without a doubt, um, the most important guy was Dusty. Well, we fast forward um, through that uh, September call up in 78. But also, you make your first opening day roster at 23 years old. And you make an emergency start versus Philly. And then you end up going 17 and 10 that year, rookie of the year. It's a pretty incredible moment. Can you take us through that process when you felt like, okay, this is where I belong, and it, it really had a lot to do with that emergency start? I, yeah, it, it did. I, I really didn't know that that was what it was going to mean. Um, I showed up at the ballpark, and we're facing the Phillies, and the opposing pitcher is Steve Carlton. Uh, I don't want to say the guy's name. I don't want to throw him under the bus, but we got a call at about four o'clock in the afternoon from a guy saying he had the 24 hour flu. He, he wasn't able to pitch that night, but he'd be fine to face Dick Ruffin the next night. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I had like, I had like maybe 15 innings in leading up to that point. It's the middle of May. You know that this day and age, you're going to be on a pitch count, right? No, I, I, I threw a complete game. I think I gave up one run. I think Smitty hit one of the many home runs he hit off of me in the ninth inning. Um, but the interesting part about that game was Davey Lopes told me that Manny Trio was too comfortable. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, hit him. So I hit Manny Trio, and I break his wrist. So an inning later, I'm going up to hit <laughs> Dusty Baker. Dusty says, get ready, kid. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he's going to hit you. He's going to get you. And I go, if he hits me, I'm going to go out there and kick his butt. Like, I mean, you know, I'm, I weighed about 180. We're talking about Steve Carlton, a frick, you know, a mountain of a man yeah. out there. But I'm going to go get him, right? So the first pitch he throws is a breaking ball in the dirt. Swing dog, you're a left-handed hitter like me. Left-handed pitcher throws one in the dirt. 
you figure it's on, right? We're just yeah. going to, he's going to try to get me out. The next one went between my helmet and my head. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I literally was checking my head for home. I, I mean, like, yeah, he tried to get me good. And, you know, looking in the dugout, at, I mean, had I not had an accident in my pants, I was going to go get him. But thank goodness I never did go out there and do that. But, you know, you, you, you learn a lesson right there. You learn that, you know, there's going to be a price to pay. And, um, you know, that's why throughout my career, I was never a fan of the DH. I always felt like if you did something, you had to go up there and take your turn. Yeah, and you think about it too, Sut, uh, and being around you and, and getting to know you through Barry, uh, through everybody else. You had an edge to yourself, and you, maybe it was Dusty Baker, maybe it was somebody else that influenced you that. But you did not back down for those confrontations. And back in the day, that was the kind of the norm. Can you speak to that a little bit and what it did for you to be on that mound, protection, hey, this is a time when I have to, to send a message, and how you handled those situations? I, I think it kind of goes back to um, when I auditioned for ESPN, uh, Mark. Um, ESPN, Tim Scanlon made a bunch of calls to check on, do a background check on me. And several people, one of them was Cal Ripken Jr. When they asked about me as a broadcaster, he said, I don't know. He said, I'll tell you this. He was a great teammate. Um, you know, that that was the thing. I, I, if, if somebody hit Cal or somebody hit you or hit Rhino, um, there was a price you were going to pay. Um, I wanted everybody to know that when I was on the mound, I need to, I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm tough. I'm just saying I need to protect those guys because if I'm going to win a game, they've got to be comfortable. They can't be hitting the dirt every other pitch with some guy knocking them down. So, you know, that was something that, that Dusty taught me early. Um, there's a right way and a wrong, wrong way to do it. Um, you're standing up there hitting. I'm going to throw one under your chin. If I throw a four-seam fastball, you got room to move. You can get out of the way. But, Mark, if I chase you with that, then, then that's wrong. You got nowhere to go right there. Don Drysdale was the guy that taught me, if you put just an inch of fear in a man's heart, you're going to own him. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to knock you down. Then there comes that point where, you know, you got to hit somebody. You know, they hit one of your guys. You got to hit one of theirs or maybe two of theirs. You got to know what you're doing. If, if, if you try to hit somebody in the back, and you've got that adrenaline, it might get away from you. And it might be up around the head area. And that is an absolute no-no. Drysdale taught me to aim at the belt. Because that adrenaline is going to get you. It's going to mm -hmm. elevate a little bit. And if you miss the belt, at least you're going to do is something in the middle of the back. And the one thing I want to say that I have said throughout my career, even when I was playing, Mark, there's a time and a place for protecting your hitters. It's not in the Little League. It's not high school. It's not college. And it's not at the minor league level. It's only when you get to the big league level and there's a World Series championship to play for. You let your coaches, you let your parents, you let everybody else handle those things until you get to that situation. There's no need for any of that until you get to the big league level. Rick, were you this much of a tough guy when uh, you were deciding which pair of spikes to wear? Because uh, <laughs> back before there was an Air Jordan and the world was fixated with what brand of equipment all you big league players were wearing, uh, I don't think it's a reach to say you were something of a pioneer uh, with the Nike brand, weren't you? You know, that might have been um, that might have been uh, the highlight of my baseball career. It might have been the smartest thing that, that Barry Axelrod ever talked me into doing was putting on that swoosh the very first time. Um, it didn't go well. Um, I know as you look at me now, um, when I tell you that the plates cracked, 
Um, the, re the reason the plates would crack now is because I weighed 250 pounds. I weighed 180 back then, but the Nike shoe back then was nowhere near, um, you know, what it is today. Uh, Barry was great friends with the president of Nike baseball for years and years, Bill Frechette. And all of a sudden I got a call from Barry telling me that this guy's coming in. How that happened, I don't know. But the next thing I know, he asked me to wear a pair of Nike shoes that night. Um, it ended up being the very first pair of Nike baseball shoes ever worn. Uh, to this day, um, I get invited on a Nike all-star baseball trip. How it happened with Bill Frechette, um, Barry would have to tell you. You know, there was no uh, great foresight. Bill was a friend of mine for a long time. And Nike came up with a baseball shoe. And he asked me if I knew anybody that would wear a size 12 that would try it. And I think I, whatever the size was, it was Rick's right size. And I said, can you at least wear these around before a game and try it? And sure enough, he's wearing them before a game when he gets this emergency start. And there he goes out the mound. And I think the plates broke. I think the sides tore out of them. <laughs> and he called me and he goes, these things are horrible, but I need another pair because I got another start in four days. So uh, it was it was more superstition than product quality, I think. But it worked. It's, a, well, it's been a long time relationship. And another part of that story was I was seven and oh when I got to start the game in Nikes. Um, it was a tough time for them to, to get them made. Uh, but literally, I, I mean, you just, you just think back, uh, being a part of Nike, um, has just been huge as far as our life's concerned. Well, the superstition pays off. I mean, you play well and you end up, uh, leaving the Dodgers after the 81 season, you're traded to Cleveland, uh, where you pitch very well for some, let me be delicate and somewhat diplomatic for some less than stellar Cleveland Indian teams at the time. <laughs> Even lead the American League in uh, in ERA one of those years. Who was the greatest influence for you, though, while you were with Cleveland? Hey, Mark, less than stellar. That's how a professional broadcaster. <laughs> it is. It is, and it's called a layup. Make, make a note of that one. You might have to use that. <laughs> there's some there's some things that we need to clean up. You know, I, I think you go back. Yeah, the rookie of the year in '79, '80, and '81. I struggled. I found out um, early in spring training of '82 uh, that I was tipping my pitches. Um, a guy named Alice Bannister said, hey, man, I, I can tell every time you're throwing a breaking ball. Well, there were two influences when I got there. One, one was finding out that, obviously. But the first week of spring training, a guy named Burt Blylevin, Hall of Famer, um, invited me to go run with him. Starting pitcher. Starting pitcher's got to run distance. I, I barely made it halfway to where he was going, and I had to walk all the way back. By the end of spring training, I was able to run with him. The other thing, and, and probably the turning point in my career, I mean, they were talking about sending me to the minor leagues and all of this. Our manager was a guy named Dave Garcia, uh, a San Diego legend. I mean, yeah. a baseball legend, one of the nicest human beings you'd ever meet. We're getting ready to go on a road trip around the middle of May, and everybody's talking about he's going to be fired. I continued to do all that running, even though I was in the bullpen, that Bly Levin taught me how to do. We get on the plane to go on a 10-day road trip, and Dave Garcia handed me a baseball. And he goes, they're going to fire me when we get back. And I'm okay with that. That's fine. He goes, but I'm giving you this because you continue to work hard. You've earned it. He goes, do me a favor. Don't let them take it away from you. He put me into the rotation on the first game of that 10-day road trip. I go 3-0 and on that road trip. I won the first game, the middle game, and the last game. I come out in the papers, and I talked about, hey, if it weren't for Dave Garcia, none of this would be happening. About a week later, Dave called me into his office and he said, hey, 
the front office is so mad at you right now. He goes, they had my replacement already picked out, but because of what you said in the paper, now they can't fire me. So, so what happened? What happened for me turning my career around actually extended Dave's managerial career for a little bit longer. And uh, <laughs> after that, we were off and running. Dave Garcia, an absolute legend, as you talked about. He he passed away at 97 years young, but the knowledge of baseball was incredible, and he lent it to anyone that would ask. Sit down with him at the at the ballpark. Incredible story set. I want to go back to Blylevin because I think every player needs balance. You have the intensity. You're learning all the stuff from Dusty Baker and all of the other influences in the game. But balance comes uh, pranks. And I think Burt Blylevin had that ability to have a lot of fun to a lot of people's expense. Talk to us about your best Burt Blylevin story. I think the one I had the most fun with, um, he taught me when we were in Cleveland. And when I got to Chicago, I didn't do a lot of it in 84 because I had just gotten there. didn't know we were going to be around or whatever. But in 85, you know, I signed that long-term deal. So I had a little bit of freedom. And Obviously, as a starting pitcher, you, you know, you got those four days in between. Uh, <laughs> That's your dangerous. Um, they used to call down. Arnie Harris would call the phone in the dugout, and he would tell me that, that Harry Carey had been out the night before, and he's really struggling. We're having a bad game or whatever. He goes, what can you do to liven him up? Well, something that Vlad Levin taught me was you go up to the bat boy, and there's two outs, and you know the next guy's going to make an out. He stinks at home plate. You tell the bad boy, where are they? Where are they? We can't find them. We need them. We need them. We need them. You know what I'm talking about, dog. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the last out is made, and I tell him, bad boy, go to the home plate umpire right now. You're talking about a 10, 12-year-old kid. You're having fun with him. Arnie Harris has got the cameras on him. Harry Carey's all ready to broadcast it, and I send him out for the keys to the batter's box. And as he gets to home plate, he, 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 it's, he's just – everything's going so fast. He tells the home plate umpire, hey, we need the keys to the batter's box. Well, all the umpires knew me. They would check their pockets, and the home plate umpire would send him to the second base umpire. While the pitcher's warming up, here's the kid running to second base. The second base umpire, he don't have him. The first base umpire has him. Send him to the first base umpire. He would always put his arm around the kid going, hey, young man, you play baseball? Yes, sir, I do. Um, do you know what the batter's box is? Yes, sir. You, you realize there's – you know, and as he started to say it, you see the kid like throw his head up like there are no keys to the batter's box. <laughs> Mark, I think you made a great point right there. It's the, it's the balance that you guys had because you both, you, Rick, uh, and Bly Lemon, I mean, fierce competitors, but you understood the grind of the season, how hard it is mentally to get through the year. And, and you found a way to, to bring some levity to the game and brighten the day for your teammates and fans all the way around. Uh, your time in Cleveland, while, uh, let me try to throw out another broadcast professional uh, cliche, um, was, uh, <laughs> was, was extraordinary, Rick, uh, for some less than extraordinary clubs. You did pick up an all-star nod in 1983. It was the first of uh, your three all-star games, one in 83, one in 87, one in 89. Uh, which is your favorite appearance? Uh, what's your best story from your all-star memory collection? Um, without a doubt, it would probably, without a doubt, it would be the 1989 all-star game um, in Anaheim. Um, I was leaning on a batting cage watching uh, the American League team take BP. And they had a contest for 100 bucks. whoever could hit the furthest home run to dead center field. 
you can't pull it. You can't hit. You had to hit it up on that tarp that they had in Anaheim. And if you all of you think back, you know exactly. Barry was there. Barry was actually. I, I got him some great. Where were those seats, Barry? I got them for you. They were free. They were in row Z Z. As the top Z Z top. The top is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's not lying, but he had a great view of uh, the home run that Bo Jackson hit. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we've heard a lot of guys talk about, um, you know, Josh Gibson and, and a lot of the Babe Ruth and the sound. Um, the only time I ever heard a ball sound like that where the, the pitch was actually overmatched was that day when Bo Jackson hit that home run to dead center that actually went a lot further than anybody hit in that home run contest earlier in BP. Wasn't that against Rick Russell? Was it against Rick Russell? Big Daddy. And if you go back and look at the pitch, it might have bounced before it got to the catcher. He swinged up. He inside-outed that ball 480 feet to dead center. It's incredible to say that because my first big league spring training, Bo Jackson, was in an Angels uniform. And it's Bo knows all that, uh, that promotion deal. And in the backfields, I'm walking to field 18, right? I'm going back to field 18 because that's where I belonged. And <laughs> here comes Bo Jackson, and he breaks the bat in BP and hits it over the batter's eye. So it, your reference point to that all-star game was pretty incredible. But, Barry, you were there. And uh, Rosie Z, Rosie Z. what was, what was your, your thought process on, the, on that all-star game? The the best part of it, well, I know that that Rick was a last minute ad, and uh, he can tell you about getting in that game and how that came about. But for me, being in row ZZ was actually an advantage because I was able to look down at the top of that home run when it reached its peak. I was still looking down, and I could see it follow it all the way. So it's a great vantage point. So thanks again. Swing up. There were planes that were underneath Barry that he could look <laughs> down upon those seats. What had actually happened was um, I was leading the league in wins. And uh, Tommy Lasorda was the manager of the National League team. And after 1981, when I rearranged his office um, with him in it, um, he didn't care for me a whole lot. So he wasn't going to add me to the team in 89. Uh, Mike Scott got hurt. So uh, the National League president called me, Bill White, and said, hey, you got to come. Well, anyway, Robin and I flew in. And Robin ended up sitting with – was Ryan Sandberg's wife because Ryan was on the team, of course. And they offered me two tickets, but I guess the last two tickets they had were Rosie Z. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Barry was right there next to Bob Uecker. Well, you know, you know, you mean a lot to a player, Barry, when, uh, when you get those types of perks and that yeah. type of seat assignment, right? Yeah, I was, I was just happy to be there. <laughs> Rick, let me go back to 1984. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast and how it was your signature moment uh, in your game against Pittsburgh that launches the Cubs into the playoffs. Uh, but it was a crazy year for you all the way around 84. You start the year in Cleveland. You go four and five. You get traded to the Cubs in June. The trade itself, what do you remember about the circumstances surrounding that? Well, I, I, I had been in a, in a brawl, a team brawl, um, a couple of days before that with Oakland, and punches were being thrown right and left. And um, I remember Dallas Green calling the clubhouse in Oakland saying that uh, – and Barry had given me a heads up that they were talking about making a deal. And he goes, we're going to make a deal, but 
we need you to sign a three-year extension. We can't give up these players without, you know, with you being able to walk. And I go, Dallas, I go, look, I, I don't want to be traded. Um, you know, at the end of the year, I'm going to go home and play for my hometown team, Kansas City. Um, you know, I'm not the one that wants out. I go, Bert Blylevin wants out. I go, why don't you take him? And as he hung up the phone, he says, I don't want Blylevin. Uh, I'll let you fill in the blank there. Um, the next thing I know, um, I'm, I'm headed to Chicago. Uh, I get there, and I found out that uh, the front office had messed up uh, some of the waiver wires, and I had to sit for like five days before I could pitch. Um, the Cubs lost all five games, and, you know, here's everybody looking at me like, you know, maybe I'm bad luck or, or whatever it might be. So um, with all of the things that, that went into that, all of the, the pressure that surrounded that team all year long, um, Without a doubt, um, when you go back and look at the attendance in the history of the Chicago Cubs, um, everything changed uh, in that 1984 season. You know, you know, I can add that um, from my perspective on the trade, uh, Cleveland had made us go to arbitration the year before or on the verge of arbitration. The worst part of that is we had to go to New York and neither Rick or I have New York at the top of our list as places we like to visit. But we ended up settling at midnight the night before, and uh, we told the Indians at that point, he's not coming back. He's going to exercise his free agency rights after you did that. And that had made the newspapers. So I got the call from Dallas Green uh, in, in the middle of June saying, does that apply to everybody, or would you would Rick sign an extension? I said, Dallas, you're going to have to ask Rick that. And Rick had uh, said, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, Dallas called me and said, we still want to talk about, we made the trade. We still want to talk about the extension, but how about if we wait 20 starts and then we see what happens at that point, we'll talk then. And I said, yeah, that seems fair. And after 20 starts, he was 16 and one with free agency about two weeks away. And we went, yeah, maybe we're going to try this free agency thing. That, that might be the <laughs> thing to do at this point. Hey, Doug, Doug, I got to tell you a quick story. So along with us losing like four or five games in a row and me not pitching and being bad luck, I start in Pittsburgh and, and we win. We won my first start. We come back to Chicago and I'm scheduled to pitch on Sunday against the Cardinals. <laughs> you remember that game on Saturday? I think it was the 22nd of June. Uh, they call it the Sandberg game. Mm -hmm. You remember the five for six and seven homer and the homer off of Suter in the ninth to tie it, the homer off of Suter in the 11th to tie it? Oh, Let yeah. me tell you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. We get back on Friday, and all of a sudden, Keith Moreland comes up and tells me that the country music group Alabama's in town. And after the day game on Friday, which we lost, um, he said, they're playing. Uh, can you get us tickets? Well, yeah, I knew all of those guys from the Dodgers. He says, we're going to have a party at my house. Well, we show up at his house, my wife and I, three-fourths of the team is there. I got to get like 25 tickets to get to this concert. We get there. Afterwards, Randy Owen, we go back to talk to him. Three-fourths of the team is still with me. At 3 o'clock in the morning, when we leave backstage, we head home and then to Wrigley for a day game. Mark, we're down 7-1 to one in the second inning. <laughs> Everybody's looking at me like, you know, well, what are you doing here? Well, we gave up Joe Carter for this or whatever. So... <laughs> Listen, everybody left the ballpark that night that had on, you know, that were Cub fans in, in a great mood. 
nobody was happier about winning that game than I was. <laughs> yeah, Cubs baseball, and you were in the the whole storm. And you think about after that trade, we mentioned sixteen and one, but fourteen straight wins, which was really important for that role to get into the playoffs. And the Cubs fans, obviously fanatics at that point, and knowing that they're going into the playoffs, takes you into free agency, Sut. And I'm I'm glad that Dallas Green said, hey, let's wait those 20 games, right? Because it probably made it easier for Barry, made it easier for you to go in. You're the top free agent on that market that year. What do you remember going through that process for the first time? I remember George Steinbrenner from the Yankees calling and saying, um, I don't finish second. Get the best deal you can get. And he hangs up on me. I remember Ted Turner telling Barry that, he needs a team and I need a pitcher. Um, whatever we pay him, we're going to pay Adele Murphy more. Um, I think the funniest story is um, uh, Barry flies back and we have dinner uh, with the Kansas City Royals. Um, we go to the Kansas City Country Club, which that was the first time I was ever there. And, and I haven't been invited back since. But, you know, that's, that's a whole nother deal. Um, we're sitting there with the Kaufmans and with Dick Hauser and John Sherholz and everybody's around and they're going to offer us this lifetime contract. And all of a sudden we get a knock on the door. It's mayor Dick Berkeley um, just happened to be in the area. And he comes in, he has a drink with us. Great that you're going to be a Royal Rick. Can't wait. Blah, blah, blah. And off he goes right as he shuts the door. Another knock on the door. It's governor Kit Bond. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just happened to be in the area. He comes in, he sits down. Great that you're going to be a Royal, Rick. We just can't wait. This is awesome. And then all of a sudden when he leaves, Barry asks a question to Mr. Kaufman. I'll let you take it from here, Bear. I was just pretty impressed already. And I said, Mr. Kaufman, if Ronald Reagan comes through that door next, you're going to have yourself a pitcher. You got a deal. And I'll, I'll, he didn't miss a beat. He reaches for the phone. He goes, that can be arranged. <laughs> he, was, he was a great gentleman, a wonderful owner. But uh, we had no out. idea. We had no idea um, what free aging, free agency was going to be like. Um, yeah, it's an experience that literally I wished everybody could go through once. Hey, they're throwing all this money at you guys. Uh, what was the difference maker? How'd you make your decision? Well, the, the, the thing that changed for me was I had promised Harry Carey that I would go to Peoria, Illinois to a function uh, for his best friend, a guy named Pete Vinokin. And I told Barry, I'm going to fly up there and then I'm going to fly back and we'll probably end up signing with the Royals when I'm back. I get to this, this, this high school and I don't, I'm going to say 15,000 people and what maybe held like 1,500. And as we pull in, Pete Vinokin had picked me up in the airport and I love that he picked me up in an old station wagon. He had a pail and a shovel and a rake in the back. As we went over the railroad tracks, they were clanging. And it just kind of reminded me at home, he, he could not have been a, a nicer guy. And as we pulled out of there, he said, I, I got a phone call I got to make. And he made that phone call, and it was to Harry Carey. And he put me on the phone, and Harry says, let me tell you something. It'll be the biggest mistake of your life if you don't come back to the Cubs. You're not only in the minds of every single Cub fan in the world, but he goes, you're in their household. You're in their heart. I got back to the hotel. Um, it was late at night. I called Barry. I said, Barry, can, 
can you meet me in Chicago? And he goes, you're going to be, we're going to be a cub, aren't we? I said, yeah, we are bear. I think I've made up my mind and, um, him and Dallas green got it done, uh, within a couple of hours the next day. What a great decision that was. Go ahead, Barry. As I recall it, um, uh, it came down to Kansas city was definitely in the running, but so were the Padres. And, uh, we had, it was going to be the next day when Rick decided he had had enough of the process. And I had a ticket to Chicago and we got him a ticket to San Diego. And I didn't really know which direction he was going to go. We could always go to Kansas city. And as I recall it, I think after that event, Rick was at, he called me and the one, the words I remember were, you know, I've made my decision. You're coming to Chicago. My heart's in Chicago. And, you know, you can talk about money or you can talk about all the other factors, but I think that became the main factor for Rick is that that's where his heart was. Yeah, those decisions make uh, an impactful moment, I'm sure, Sut, and knowing that you made the right decision and the Harry Carey element, so many elements that go into it. The interesting aspect that I always follow, and especially doing broadcasting now, is the pitcher-catcher relationship. And why I bring this up is Jody Davis meant a lot to you. And that even goes into that thought process of, I have trust in in the ability to know that I have a catcher behind it. Speak to that if you could of of how you handled the pitcher catcher relationship and how it molded you as a pitcher so i get to chicago and that's a great great question and a great point uh mark um and jody davis comes down to catch a bullpen and before the game we're going over the scouting report on the first game that i'm going to pitch and he goes hey you got to help me out here i go what are you talking about he goes you got to call your own pitches you got to call your own pitches until I get on board. And once I start getting a feel for you, then I'll take it from there. So we came up with a set of signs for the first five innings of that first game where I called every pitch. Years later, all of a sudden, 1989, um, our catcher got hurt. They call up a kid from AA named Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi's got to catch me on opening day at Wrigley Field. He's scared to death. I bring him in, and I go, hey, Joe, don't worry about it. I'll call every pitch. You don't even need to look at their lineup. I've got it. The next thing you know, um, this kid, Greg Maddox, comes along. Mad Dog, I saw him with a man on second, shaking, shaking, stepping off, you know, losing that rhythm. I go, Mad Dog, you got to call your own pitches. We go to Baltimore, a guy named Ben McDonald and Mike Mussina. We called every pitch for them. The next thing you know, I got Cal Ripken Jr. calling pitches to the catcher to help the pitcher out. That's a great question, Mark. I mean, that relationship has to be great. And as you know, I, you know, I, I, I was a rookie league pitching coach for a couple of years and I would get a veteran college pitcher coming in and have a young high school catcher there. And I would tell the college pitcher, Hey, come on, help this guy out. You know what you're doing out there. A lot of people had never heard of that, but you know how important rhythm is in the game. And as a pitcher, you want to establish yours and try to upset theirs. Well, that, that key Jody Davis, what he told me that first game about call your own pitches, that made things a lot simpler for me. Rick, there was a point, though, as I recall, where uh, your great manager, Don Zimmer, lost a little confidence in your ability to call your own pitches. And uh, <laughs> t- tell, that, tell that story. It's the boys of Zimmer, um, guys, back in 1989. Don Zimmer had done everything right up until this point. And uh, all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're in a tough stretch. I had lost three games in a row. Um, things just weren't going right. He calls me into his office um, after the start that I'd lost the third game. And he goes, he starts airing me out. What's wrong with you? I could call a better game than you. 
I said, you know what? You're so smart. I go, all right, you called every pitch. So five days later, we're at Shea Stadium. It's packed. I'm warming up in the bullpen. He, he comes down the bullpen and he says, hey, you know what you're doing. You're, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Four days ago, you're the smartest man in the world. I go, I haven't even seen their lineup. He says, you want me to call the pitches? I, I'll call every pitch then. Swing dog, I get on the mound. The first pitch of the game, Joe Girardi puts down a changeup. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I look into the dugout. And Zim's looking at me like, well, are you going to do it? Well, I threw a changeup. The next thing you know, we get nine up, nine down. We score a run in the top of the fourth. We're in the bottom of the fifth inning. All of a sudden, there's a base hit. There's an infield hit. And I walk a guy. Bases are loaded. Nobody out. Shea Stadium going crazy. And up came Daryl Strawberry in his prime. Joe Girardi comes out. Here comes Zim running out. And Zim was told by his wife, Suet, that when you're going to use profanity, you got to put your hand over your mouth because WGN, you're always on TV. So he puts his hand over his mouth. So I know I'm going to get it aired out. Right. He goes, Hey, he goes, I ain't calling your pitches no more. He goes, you know what you're doing? He goes, you're on your own. <laughs> and he turns and runs back to the dugout. I'll tell you, Joe Girardi and I are there laughing. Harry Carey on the air goes, well, I don't know what they're laughing about, Steve. This is a tough spot right here. Next thing you know, my 86-mile-an-hour heater, Daryl Strawberry, pops it up. Kevin McReynolds lines a hanging breaking ball to third base, steps on third for a double play. We're backed in the top of the fifth with a one-to-nothing lead, and Joe Girardi are saying, hey, boys, we don't know if we're going to win this game or lose it, but we know one thing, we're on our own. <laughs> that, that was our theme that whole year. I mean, anytime we needed runs in the night, boy, hey, Zim ain't going to help. We're on our own. We, and, you know, it just – I mean, the next thing you know, we're in the National League Championship against the Giants. Ricky had so many wonderful memories that we're all smiling and laughing. I wish people listening uh, could see our faces. I'm sure we're mirroring a lot of what everybody uh, listening to you right now is, is feeling. The ear-to-ear grin. You had so many great moments. I want to go back to uh, August 8th uh, of 1988 because for oh, those yeah. in Chicago – what a milestone moment, and, and you were part of it, that first night game at Wrigley Field. What do you remember about that evening? Mike, I remember it being to this day, other than our daughter being born, um, the biggest event that, that I was ever involved in. Um, you know, there was always going to be another opening day, um, but we didn't think there would ever be another opening night where they turned on the lights at, at Wrigley. And I remember before the game, the, the Hall of Fame people came to me, and I never talked to anybody the day I'm pitching, but it's the Hall of Fame, so, you know, our manager said, hey, they need to tell you something. I go, what? And they go, we want the first ball to go to the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, okay, well, me too, or whatever, you know, whatever. They go, well, here's the deal. We don't want it to be put in play. We don't want it fouled off. I go, what are you telling me? Just get it over with. We've talked to the home plate umpire, Eric Grick. He's going to have a generous outside corner. I go, you're telling me if I throw the ball and I hit the glove, he's going to give me strike one. He told us he would do that. Years later, I run into Eric Gregg, and I go, hey, what the, what the heck happened? What, what, what do you, how come you didn't give me that strike? He goes, you know what, Suddy, as you were warming up and all the people were looking and all the excitement, I realized I didn't want to blow that first pitch because everybody's going to be watching it. Well, wouldn't you know, I hit the glove, and I mean, like, all of a sudden, the crowd's ready to go crazy, and he goes, ball. And, like, all of a sudden, here's another thing that happened that time. That's the first time I ever remember 
everybody in the ballpark took a picture. And I remember kind of being blurred a little bit. Like, I, I didn't know what happened. And if you listen to Harry Carey, he thought there was an explosion somewhere because of all the flashbulbs that went off. So the second pitch I throw to Phil Bradley, um, he hits it into the street. And now the excitement that was there before the first pitch got toned down because it was a ball. And then when the next pitch goes into the, the parking lot, um, you could hear a pin drop. And even out on the field, we could hear Bill Murray, who was on the air with Harry Carey. Bill Murray goes, turn him off. <laughs> turn, turn, <laughs> turn, enough. He goes, if Phil Bradley takes Sut deep, it's not going to work. Turn him off. Forget it. <laughs> that was the first night game, so we thought. Well, you know, the beauty of that, though, is, Rick, you, you were still going to be in the books for firsts. And, it, it, you know, so statistically, yeah. it would have been a blast. However, the game gets rained out. It turns out that none of those statistics uh, will follow you uh, into history other than in your own head and, and Barry's as well. Barry, what do you remember about that night, the significance not only of, of Rick's participation in it, uh, but just all the electricity and fanfare and maybe the fun stories behind that? Uh, and it was, uh, as Rick said, it was an event. And uh, I mean, a, a long anticipated event. Everybody wanted to be there. And we had a lot of people that came into town. And uh, I can remember how hard it rained and the, the game was going to get rained out. Um, and we uh, we all took off. Rick Rick called and said, you guys, or he sent somebody up and said, you guys get out of here. Go over to Murphy's because this thing's over. I'll be over in a minute. And sure enough, here he came. Well, one of our good friends, mine and Rick's, is Mark Harmon, and they had a celebrity on in every half inning. And uh, he was on with Harry Carey, and he got stuck there. For, they didn't want to call the game. They wanted the TV ratings. And we're all over at Murphy's Bleachers having a good post game, and Mark's still on TV. We can see him still up there. Had to call him. The other thing I remember is, as a joke, I had gotten a Louisville Slugger bat with my name on it from our friend Chuck Shupp, and I gave it to Rick. And with a, you know, I signed it with some silly autograph and gave it to Rick. Well, unbeknownst to me, he had an at bat in that game and he took that bat to the plate with him. And I think he struck out, but he hold managed. on, hold, hold on. I fouled off the first yeah. pitch. Yeah. And it had a weird sound, like maybe it was corked or fake or whatever. Cleaned <laughs> <laughs> up. I knew that it wasn't a real bat. So I kept it on my shoulder until that at bat was over with. Now go ahead, Bear. But that first foul ball <laughs> hit a light tower. And so in the Tribune the next day, along with all of Rick's other firsts, you know, first run, first home run, first RBI, first foul ball off a light tower. And then he came out and gave me the bat back. So I, I still have that. It's the natural. of the first night game. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong light tower. <laughs> Swinging wonder boy. Yeah. <laughs> From the natural. So that's uh, night games at 88. You wrap up your time with the Cubs. Uh, after the 91 season, as we had talked about before, a, an extraordinary run, especially through free agency after that 84 year. But you're again a free agent in, in 91 when the Cubs don't offer you a contract after the season. You've got to find some place to play, Rick and Barry. And you guys are, are sure trying to figure this out because you had some injuries. Who's going to be interested? What are they going to pay? Uh how did this free agency run in 91 compare to uh, what you endured in, in 84, Rick? Yeah, Mike, it, it was completely different. I mean, from having every team in baseball wanting you to trying to find somebody that, that wanted you. 
Um, the last thing in the world I, I felt like I wanted to do at 35, 36 years of age was uh, go to the American League where the designated hitter was there. Um, but I got a call from a, a, a longtime friend. Johnny Oates caught me a lot in 79. He was our bullpen catcher in 84 with the Cubs. So a couple of the, the biggest years that I had, Johnny was a part of. Well, Johnny was the manager of the Baltimore Orioles, and he asked Barry and I to fly to Baltimore. We, we did out of, out of respect for Johnny. He takes me and he walks me out to the mound. They were just finishing up building Camden Yards. And Johnny gets me to the mound and he says, hey, nobody else is going to know, but you're going to throw the first pitch ever in this ballpark. And as we speak, I, I, I got goosebumps now thinking about Johnny doing that. And he had me look around at all the great sites. And as I walked off the mound, I, again, I told Barry, I said, uh, uh, we're going to play 1992 in Baltimore. Um, the next thing you know, he, he goes and, and, and he gets the deal done. Um, it, it, it was amazing leading up to that. And Mike, we're in spring training and we're, we're 10 days away from opening day. And I go into Johnny's office and I said, Johnny, I said, uh, you're making a mistake. I go, I shouldn't be pitching opening day. I'm, I'm not your best pitcher. I go, Mike Messina and Ben, Mike Messina is better than me. And Johnny looked at me and he goes, I know that. And he goes, Ben McDonald's better than you. He goes, but listen, we finished in last place last year. For us to get ahead, to get above 500, those guys need to have big years. And I don't want either one of them lined up against everybody else's number one pitcher. I want you lined up against the number one because you'll hold your own and we'll get above 500 and maybe get to the playoffs on the right arms of both of those guys. And Johnny was absolutely right. Um, you know, and as I recall it, it was a different free agency um, situation leading to that point. And Johnny Oates was an important, very important part of it, along with Larry Lucchino and Roland Heeman, two other legendary names in baseball. But the fact that that we really went in there not really wanting to go there, but it, it ended up being the only choice. And then the way it worked out because of those people and the influence those people had on Rick's career uh, and led to a magical moment, and that being the first game in Camden Yards. Barry, do, take us do, do these guys know? Um, they know. Do you guys know the final score that day? It was two to nothing, right? Um, you know, Charlie Nagy and I both threw complete games. Barry, do they know what happened the night before? Um, Mark may have heard the story, but. <laughs> <laughs> I heard there was a hero uh, involved in that game that well, uh, wasn't wearing a uniform. Even though I had a complete game, there was a save, but it happened the night before. <laughs> That's what we heard. <laughs> Barry, tell us about that story. Well, we, my wife and I uh, had gone, and, and we were staying with Rick and Robin at their house in Annapolis, and they had played an exhibition game somewhere, and maybe Philadelphia, I don't remember. RFK, down in D.C. Okay. And uh, so Rick comes back to the house and he's not feeling well and he's eating something that didn't agree with him. And as the night goes on, it gets worse. And now it's 10 or 11 at night and Robin comes to me and said, we, we need something. We need some medicine. We need Pepto-Bismol or somewhere. I don't know. He's really bad. And so I go out, I get in the car and go out and it's dark. They were out on the Chesapeake Bay and dark roads and windy roads and there's no GPS or cell phones. And I somehow found an open drug store and got a couple of bottles of Pepto-Bismol and somehow found my way back to the house and, 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 you know, gave them to Rick and I, I didn't want to stay around for whatever else was going to happen that night. So 
uh, went to bed and he woke up the next morning feeling like a, a million dollars, ready to go. So. <laughs> and it was a magical day. It truly was. Uh, the, the, not only a, 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 the shutout, but in two hours and one minute, which was unbelievable. Well, Sut, you have a, an established career with so many highs and lows, more highs than lows. Because when you go through arm injuries, you you develop all kinds of different things that can take you into after your career. And as you mentioned, you had an opportunity to, to, to coach, which I thought was important for you. Yeah. But you also had an opportunity to broadcast, and you've done such a great job after that. How did that start in particular? Because I think it's a fascinating story. You know, Mark, I, I retired um, – at the end of 94, basically because of the strike, um, when we didn't start back on time in 95, I was really disappointed in, in the Players Association. Um, I got a call um, at the end of 95 from Larry Lucchino, the president of the Padres, asking me to be the big league pitching coach. And I told him, no, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I really didn't want to be a, 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 you know, a part of anything full time. Well, the following spring, he called me and says, Anything you want, whatever you want, any kind of coach, whatever level, whatever works for you. Well, I asked him if I could be the rookie league pitching coach up in Idaho Falls, Idaho. I wanted to give something back. Uh, Robin and I loaded up Shelby and our horses and our dogs, and we drove. Well, about halfway through the season there, uh, in 1996, the Padres were playing a series in Monterey, Mexico. Uh, Fernando Valenzuela was pitching the first game, and, of course, Fernando and I were extremely tight from our days with the Dodgers. Well, Lucchino told me he wanted me to broadcast that game. And I'm like, I, 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 that's the last thing in the world I will ever do. Well, again, Larry didn't take no for an answer. Next thing you know, I fly to Monterey. Um, I was blessed, um, as you are, Mark. You've talked many times to me about being able to work with Mike and the trust you guys have and the friendship. Well, I got to work with Bob Chandler. And again, one of the nicest human beings in the world. And all he did for three games was toss me softballs. And it was fun. Well, ESPN saw that. And they asked me to do a postseason series on radio. I said, absolutely not. I'm done. I'm not. Do I'm never broadcasting again. Larry Lucchino goes, we need the exposure. You got to go do it. I got to work with a guy named Ernie Harwell. Come on. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You know, the voice of the Detroit Tigers um, cut out of the same cloth, basically, as Bob Chandler. And getting to work with people like that is a reason that, you know, from 1996 until, again, this year, uh, we continue to do it. Uh, longevity speaks volumes, right? Your career as a pitcher, obviously your career as a broadcaster. One guy that in particular sticks out in my mind that I remember uh, in my playing days is you spent a lot of time with Chris Berman. Can you tell us uh, one of your favorite stories about Chris Berman and what he meant to you? Yeah, um, and, and, and Mark, even to this day, uh, he means a lot. As you know, five years ago, Boomer got let go at ESPN. Uh, when a new president came in, the first thing he did was bring Boomer back. Well, Boomer, Boomer's parting package was to be able to work a division series on radio for five straight years, and he wanted to do it with me, which is, you know, come on. When, when the king, Elvis, wants to work with you, um, you know, it, it's only going to help extend your career. But I, I, I had to fly back um, in 97 to interview with ESPN. And as I walk in to do this Baseball Tonight show, uh, Chris Berman walked in. And when Elvis is in the building, I mean, everybody there took note. I mean, he, he was the guy in 1997. 
well, they had me do this Baseball Tonight show, and they wanted me to talk about Jason Isringhausen and Bill Pulsifer. I had never heard of them, nor I, I, I didn't even think I could pronounce their name. They wanted me to talk about Bobby Bonilla playing left field and misplaying a fly ball. Well, anyway, all of a sudden, I describe it. There's a curveball by Isringhausen. There, there's Pulsifer. And Bobby Bonilla, that's a tough play at Fenway to make. Well, this guy who's like the boss or whatever, he starts airing me out, going, you know, I'm, I'm, you, you got to tell me more about Isringhausen. You got to do this on Pulsifer. You got to bury uh, Bobby Bonds for being in left field. I go, wait a minute. I go, first of all, I'm lucky to spell, be able to pronounce their name. Second of all, you've never been at Fenway Park or played left field when it shouldn't have been there. I go, you know what? And you can shove this job wherever you want to. Chris Berman standing behind me goes, I told you, that's the guy you want right there. I go, I can call Dallas Green. I can find out about Pulsifer and Israel. Anyway, I was irate, but the next thing you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still with ESPN. Uh, you've, yeah, <laughs> remarkably. <laughs> you've had so many interesting twists and turns. But through it all, Rick, uh, your work for the community uh, has maintained a, a consistent level that's extraordinary. You won the uh, Roberto Clemente Award in 1987. In fact, back in the 80s, you start the Sutcliffe Foundation. I know you're still active with that, not only the broadcasting we talked about, you a couple of grandsons as well. Uh, how's the, how are things going with the Sutcliffe Foundation, and, uh, and, and what have you been up to uh, most recently before we let you run? You know, Mike, we're, we're doing everything we can to, to help. Um, we've um, donated some money to some restaurants back in Kansas City where we're from. We've done the same thing out here. Um, I got to give the Dodgers a lot of credit for that because when I was a rookie, I wasn't making a lot of money, and the Dodgers would pay me to make public appearances. Um, I get traded to Cleveland. I'm in a, a, a you know, and, and and they weren't paying me then, but it was you know, it gotten into my heart for the last three years. I went to this Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and they were having a picnic. And the kids were out there playing. And I asked um, the people that were going on, I go, what are you guys crying about? And they go, well, this is the last day of the event. Um, we need $5,000 to continue this program, and none of us have it. Well, I sat there and I started crying with them. I go, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I don't have $5,000. And this guy who owned the company who started it said, hey, Rick, I want you to always remember five minutes of your time will be more, worth more to these kids than 5000 of your dollars will, will ever be. Well, Barry um, helped us start the foundation in, in 1985. Um, we gave away 50 tickets to every game at Wrigley Field for the eight years we were there. Um, we gave away scholarships. We did a lot of things. Uh, I had a, a program that Barry helped me establish called the IOU program, where we would go every homestand and visit kids at the Children's Hospital. I, I did that in Cleveland. Um, long story short, coming back around, when kids would get healthy, they would call my house and I could leave them tickets out of that 50 that we'd bought from the foundation to go. All of a sudden, about 14 years ago, I get diagnosed with cancer. Um, I get told that I need to get a second opinion. The authority on colon cancer, which I had, was at the Cleveland's um, 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 hospital in, in Cleveland, Ohio. I called for this authority. Well, he, had, he, was out of, he, he didn't work anymore. He would just come in once in a while. Well, the next thing you know, his secretary, are you Rick Sutcliffe that used to play for the Indians? I go, that's right. She goes, hold on a second. He just happened to be in the office that day. He gets on the phone. He goes, you know what? I'm out of the business, but what can I do to help you? I remember you coming to visit the children's here back when you played with the Indian. 
Well, the next thing you know, I, I mean, I have colon cancer. Who knows what's going to happen with all of that? But because of his opinion and the diagnosis and everything that I went through, um, I couldn't be healthier right now. So, yeah, it not only was being a part of the community important to me, but you can see how people like you guys that know the gift of giving, it, it seems to always come back tenfold. You know, I can add one thing to that. Uh, I I take a great deal of pride in the people that I represent, um, you know, Cy Young Awards and MVP Awards and, and uh, uh, All-Star Games, but the, winning the Roberto Clemente Award says it all to me, and it means a lot. And I, one thing I will never forget is sitting in the uh, O'Hare Airport uh, the day that Rick signed his contract or the day they announced it. And we're sitting there, and I, he goes, pull out that sheet again. Let me see those numbers. And I showed it to him again, and, and uh, he said, what am I going to do with all that money? And we, that was the germination of when this foundation was formed. And the work that Rick has done through it over the years is a tremendous source of pride for me as well. And I have taken a lot back from it, just seeing the people that have been helped and how appreciative they are. So I'm very proud of that part of Rick's career. Well, for both of you gentlemen, taking the opportunity to pay it forward, uh, so many people, a, a great appreciation for all you've done. And, and Rick, the same from us. We appreciate all you've done and continue to do in the game and the time you spent with us today. Boy, 18 seasons in the big leagues, rookie of the year, three-time All-Star, Cy Young Award winner, Cubs legend, heck of a broadcaster, and a heck of a guy. Thanks so much for the time with us today. Mike, again, congratulations on that new four-year deal, buddy. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. I hope I spend it half as wisely as you did. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.